All right, so this is a true story. Little baby camel says to his mommy camel, it's a true story, so um, little baby camel says to his mommy, mommy, why do I have such long eyelashes? And the mommy camel looks at her child and says, well, you have such long eyelashes so that you can see your way through uh, the sandstorms. And uh, he smiles and Again, this is a true story. The baby camel says to his mommy, uh, Mommy, my feet are so much bigger than some of the other animals around us. Why are my feet and why are your feet so large, so big? And the mommy smiles and says, Well, it's so that we can walk through the, the desert sands, and as the desert sands are shifting, we are not sinking in the sand. And he's like, Oh, that's interesting. And baby camel says to the mommy camel one more time, Mom, why do we have such large humps on our back? What, what is the purpose and point of those? And the mommy says, well, we can travel through the desert longer than any other animal without food or, walter, uh, food or water for days. And the baby's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. And so the mother says to this baby, no other animal can see as clearly, walk as far uh, or live as long in the desert as the majestic camel. And the baby camel says, looks up to his mom and is just smiling and says, Mom, I have one more question for you. And the little baby says to his mom, since all of that is true, why do we live in a zoo? <laughs> now, I didn't hear this conversation take place, so this is not firsthand. But as I read that story, um, it really just struck a chord with me of how is it possible that something that is as majestic um, as a camel uh, created for just so much more could be locked up uh, in the zoo. And if you've ever been to the zoo, it is, it's an awesome thing to see animals that you would normally never see. Uh, and it's awesome and inspiring actually to be able to see these animals uh, up close and, and just real personal. But every time that I go to the zoo, and I usually go a couple times a year with the kids, uh, it's an awesome thing, but I always get a little bit sad of you see these phenomenal, phenomenal animals, and I always walk away saying they were created for so much more, but yet they live in a box. They live in a cage. And as I was really thinking about this story, the question that came to mind is this for us, and this is going to be what we really wrestle through and walk through today is this question of how you would answer it. Do you believe that as you sit here today, you are living the life that God created you to live to the fullest? Let me rephrase, uh, say the question again. Are you living the life that God created you to live to the fullest? Now, I think most of us, if we're honest, would say probably not. And we would come up with maybe different reasons as to why. Maybe one reason is, I don't even think that's possible. Or another reason could just be simply, I have no idea what that life would actually even look like. Or I think there might be some of us, if not many of us, who would say, uh, I actually stopped caring about living that life because I'm having a hard enough time surviving the life that I find myself in. So as you're here today, uh, and no one knows you like you, so are you living the life that God created you to live to the absolute fullest? Now, if most people in the church, and I'll just pick on this church, bless you, would say, no, I'm not living that life, my fear is then the church in many ways begins to reflect that of a zoo, where a zoo, it's, it's safe, it's familiar, it, it's comfortable, I, I know my surroundings, um, but we're living in an environment where at some level uh, we're caged, we're, we're, we're boxed in. It's safe for those who are on the inside, essentially. And we'll have visitors and guests because zoos always have visitors and guests, and they like to come and see for the church, there's some nice people there. Generally speaking, when I come to church, I like to visit maybe once, twice, three, four times a year. They're generally nice people. 
They say hi, they wave, they shake my hand, I get some coffee, and you know, it's an overall pretty good day. I'll visit again in a few months. No one bit me, and so I might come back. It's free admission. No one's charging anything, so... If we answer the question of, no, I'm not living the life that God created me to live to the absolute fullest, we become in many ways like animals caged up in a zoo, created for so much more but trapped inside that little box. Now, as I've really been considering the Apostle Paul, uh, I've spent uh, the better part of this last year uh, really trying to engage his heart, engage his mind. And I have uh, personally just been so blessed, so encouraged, so inspired, so challenged by this man's life. The Apostle Paul is the one who penned um, uh, the letter to the church in Rome. And in many ways, as I've considered Paul and his life, his example, he to me epitomizes a man who would say, yes, I am living life as God created me to live to the absolute fullest. Now, one of the things that I have intentionally not done as we've studied Romans is I've not really said much about the Apostle Paul. We have examined in great detail what Paul has said. Uh, we've examined in great in detail what Paul has instructed and what he has taught. Uh, but we have not had one message now in one year uh, looking at who is this man that penned this phenomenal letter. Um, and so this morning, what I wanted to do uh, was look at the Apostle Paul, because I, I believe that as we read through uh, Romans 15, he, he is an example. Uh, he is not to be worshipped by any means. Uh, we are not to be impressed uh, by him, but we can be inspired. We can be challenged. Um, we can, in many ways, follow the example that he set forth because I see in Paul a man who genuinely, who genuinely was living life as God created him to live to the absolute fullest. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Apostle Paul, you would know that the Apostle Paul did not start well. Actually, the Apostle Paul was bent on, hell-bent on killing Christians and killing the church. The better part of his life was spent not only misguided, but had desires and passions that did not line up with how God had created him and God, how God had wired him. But one encounter with Jesus, it just took one encounter with Jesus, and it forever set the course of the Apostle Paul's life in a brand new direction, ultimately the direction that God had wanted him, created him uh, to walk. So in the closing uh, few verses of Romans uh, 15, Paul's going to highlight basically what his plans are. His letter is pretty much over, and now he's communicating to the church in Rome. Here are some details of what's going to happen next. But it's in these details, it's in this closing section of the letter, where I think there are four, specifically four characteristics that really highlight or um, underscore why Paul was able to live the life God created him to live in the, absolute for, in, in the absolute fullest. So let me read Romans 15, verse 14. It says this, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. All right, that's just one verse, but number one of what I will tell you about why Paul was a man living life as God created him to live to the absolute fullest is because the Apostle Paul was an encourager. The Apostle Paul was a man who knew how to encourage people, and he encouraged people often. Now, he specifically passed along three encouragements to the church in Rome. He said, they are full, literally overflowing with goodness. That's Paul's way of saying you are morally and ethically a pure people, a pure community. You are overflowing with goodness and kindness and affection and charity and generosity. When Paul considered them, he said, I am convinced that you are people who are overflowing full with goodness. He went on to say, complete in knowledge, literally saying you are a mature people. 
you have a deep understanding of the things of God. You have a deep understanding of the things of the gospel, of the deep truths of Christianity. And he goes on to say, you are competent to instruct or admonish one another, which is Paul's way of saying, I see that you are beginning to instruct one another in the ways of God. Now, as I was just looking at this one verse, um, Paul did not have to encourage them. He's been talking to them now for 15 chapters. He's been talking to them, but now he talks about them. Can you imagine how encouraging it must have been to get to the very end of Romans, and your head has got to be swimming a little bit, like, wow, that was an intense letter. Kyla asked me just yesterday, she was like, you've gone through Romans in a year. Like, do you think it took them a year to read this letter? And I was like, well, I never thought about it like that. I'm guessing, you know, maybe in the afternoon they sat down and someone read this letter, and then over the weeks and months they began to kind of walk through uh, Paul's um, exhortations and teaching and encouragements. But I imagine as they got to this part in Romans 15, like, hey, can you read that again? What did he say about us? One more time. Like, let's, let's do a year-long study on Romans 15, verse 14. Like, how encouraging it must have been. Now, the question, obviously, is why did Paul, he didn't have to say anything, so why did he say anything? And I have a very simple answer of why he said something, because that's how he felt towards them. Has it ever happened to you that you had really strong feelings towards someone, that you're really blessed or just encouraged by someone, but your pride was so fat in your heart and your head, you couldn't get the words out to say, hey, I'm really encouraged by you. Hey, thank you for, for doing that. But you knew in your heart that you were really blessed by what that person did, but your pride prevented you from ever saying anything. And I love in Paul that he was a man who knew how to encourage. And when he had opportunity to encourage, he absolutely did. Are you an encouraging person? Are you a person who is really generous with not just complimenting someone of, wow, you, you look great today, your hair is fabulous. Are you a person who not compliments, but genuinely encourages? And if you want to know if you're really that person, because I think most of us like to see ourselves as that person, when's the last time someone punctuated their sentence to you by saying, hey, thanks for that encouragement? Like, how often is that the norm for people to say to you, hey, just, I just wanted to say thanks for taking the time to verbally encourage me, to send me that email, to send me that text, to send me that, that message. How is that like once a month, once a week, once a year? Or does that happen to you pretty frequently where people are like, wow, thank you for that encouragement? I think as I was thinking about this, uh, how many times... I hear the words, Michael, thank you for your encouragement to me. I really started to wonder, is there something in our lives that actually hinders or prevents us from being people who encourage other people? And I'll give you two. I think two things that hinder us from being encouraging people. Number one is insecurity. We're so insecure with ourselves that if I encourage something in someone else, if I draw attention to that in someone else, then somehow what I'm doing or what I was thinking about doing will go completely unnoticed. And so our insecurity doesn't want to encourage someone else because then maybe what I've done or was going to do or, or would do would be completely overlooked. And I don't want what I'm doing to be overlooked, so I just don't say anything. I think the second reason, and I think this will resonate with a lot of us, is we don't encourage people because we're in competition with people. And if we encourage something in someone else, well, you've just given them the upper hand. And we do not want to be people who, where someone has the upper hand over us. Now, the sad reality is you walk around thinking that you're in competition with all of these people, but the reality is no one knows that they're in competition with you. It is one of the most freeing things to know that I'm not in competition with anyone. 
Because when I feel like I'm in competition, now I'm trying to outdo them. Now I'm trying to one-up them. Now I'm trying to keep up with them. Rather than celebrate what I just saw God do with them. Rather than encourage what God is, is, has done or whatever may be happening. Now you may say, well, I'm just ultimately not, I don't have the gift of encouragement. I'm just not good at it. Well, I hope that you would never use it as an excuse. I don't have that gift or I'm not good at it, therefore I won't do it. That you wouldn't use that as an excuse to withhold blessing somebody else. I can only imagine how far that encouragement went with the church in Rome of how many times they replayed. He said that he was convinced that we are full of goodness. He said that he was convinced that we had maturity and knowledge of the deep truths of Christianity. And he saw in us that we were beginning to admonish and instruct and, and help one another grow. Don't let insecurity and you being in competition with people that don't even know they're in competition with you hold you back and prevent you from being a person who encourages others. Now, how does this possibly tie into living the life that God created you to live to the fullest? A person who knows how to encourage other people is a person who has supreme confidence that the life they are living is the life that God created them to live. So when I encourage someone else, it doesn't take anything away from me because I know where I'm at and I know what God's doing in and, and with my life. Now I wanted to give some examples uh, just in about the last 10 days of how people in this community have encouraged me, have encouraged my marriage, or have encouraged the elders of this church. Michael, grace is enough. Even though it does not eliminate all the pain, I just wanted to let you know that I care about you and I'm praying for you. That was the length of the email. I can't tell you how far that went. It probably took maybe 15 seconds to type, but it's lasted for days. Michael, you are a great pastor. Thanks for leading. Thanks for sticking around to build into us some more. I can't tell you when I got that one, how much that just encouraged my heart. It didn't give me a fat head of like, oh, well, I'm glad they're finally seeing what I see. <laughs> it just blessed. It just encouraged. Hello, fabulous elders and pastor. First off, thanks so much for your service. I have been blessed by you all in many ways. I think it's helpful to know when someone else is in agreement with you in the next steps of our community. And I know for me personally, having someone agree with you or give you confirmation is good, so I wanted to do that. Isn't that amazing to know the good that you ought to do and you do it? Rather than sitting with the idea of, yeah, it would probably be good if I encouraged my wife, my husband, my, my child, if I encouraged my co-worker, my, my neighbor, my friend, rather than just thinking about it and saying, yeah, that would be good, but never doing it. I just love that sentence. So I wanted to do that. Thank you for all that you do. God is definitely in our midst, and there is so much more that he wants to do in us. God bless. Michael and Kyla, thanks for being great friends and being generous towards me with your lives and your time. Thanks for following him well. Thanks for helping me believe in the transforming power of the gospel and challenging me to face my sin. That's just in about the last eight, nine days. I would love to see in us that is the norm. And it would be the norm if we were a people in a community living the lives that God created us to live in the fullest. Because when I'm living that life, overflowing from me is encouragement to other people to do the same. Number two. The Apostle Paul was certain, confident, and committed to God's call on his life. This is what Romans 15, verses 15 through 19 says. I have written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again, 
because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Verse 19, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to uh, Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. This was, uh, as I read these verses, I see in Paul a man who was certain, confident, and committed to God's call on his life. Now, something amazing happens to a man when he understands all that God has for him, and it frees that man from just wandering and from wondering. There's a lot of people who spend a majority of their lives wondering, what am I to do? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And in their uh, uh, wondering, they begin to wander. And their life could be summed up as a wandering wanderer. But Paul, because he was absolutely convinced and certain and confident of God's call in his life, he was able to be committed to that. Now, I'm going to give you these few things very quickly, but as you go through those uh, four or five verses, here's what we learn about Paul and God's call on his life, okay? He knew his role, uh, he knew what his role was. So if you look at verse 15, I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again. His attitude was not one of like, you've never heard these things, and I'm the first one to bring you these things, and I'm going to remind you that I was the first one to no, my, my role was not to tell you new things. My role was to remind you of things that you already knew. Now, I'm pretty sure the church in Rome was reading, especially when you get to like Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, like, we didn't know all that, Paul, but thanks for telling us. He knew his role. He knew what his role was in their life, and he played that part. Second thing is, he understood God's call as a gift. He said, because of the grace of God. He saw that because of, God's, uh, because of the grace of God at work in his life, that's how he understood his call. It wasn't a burden. It wasn't a pain. It wasn't a source of frustration. He was able to understand and ultimately receive God's call on his life. And that's the third thing, is to be a servant or to be a minister. And what's really interesting about these words, if you looked at just the original language of, of servant or minister, the actual word that is used is the word we use for liturgy. And liturgy just means sacred. So as Paul understood his call on his life, he understood it as a very sacred thing. And so no matter what he was doing, he was able to say, this is a sacred thing that I'm doing. Everything that I'm doing is ultimately just an act of worship. He embraced God's call to be a voice proclaiming the gospel of God. God wants me to, to tell people who don't know that God has good news for them. That's, that's my job. That's my call. I'm going to tell people the good news of God. And this is uh, another thing that, as we were reading in, in verse 18, where Paul says, I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished. Okay, this is the difference of someone who is a glory giver and a glory thief. When I look at Paul, he was a glory giver. He could not stop talking about what Christ was doing or what Christ had done or what God had accomplished, whether it was with him or through him or around him. Where many people are not glory givers, they're glory thieves. Did you see what I did? And we have very subtle ways of doing this. We have subtle ways of pointing out to other people to draw attention to what I've done or what I will do. Paul was not like that. He was a glory giver, not a glory thief. I love that Paul actually became more and more impressed with God and less and less impressed with himself. That's a good litmus test as you're maturing and getting older. Who are you growing more impressed with? More impressed with you or more impressed with God? And I love this last part. Because Paul was certain and confident of God's call, he committed himself to complete what God had for him. 
so much so that he could say, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of God. Okay, from Jerusalem, where Paul had started, to what would now be modern-day Serbia is about 1,400 miles. Paul traveled in three different missionary journals, uh, journals journeys, 1,400 miles. And he gets to the end of that journey and said, I've completed what God asked me to do. Everything that God required, everything that God gave me the opportunity to do, I fully entered into it. 1,400 miles and thousands upon thousands upon thousands hearing that God has good news, that God loves, that God forgives, that God is merciful, and God has made a way for us to have a relationship with him despite us being rebellious people. Now, the second characteristic of living life that God created you to live to the absolute fullest is if that's going to be you, you're going to have to be a man or a woman who is absolutely certain, absolutely certain and confident and committed to God's call on your life. So here's the million-dollar question. Maybe it's worth more than that. What is God's call on your life? As you examine your life, who you are and where you are, what is God's call on your life? Do you know? Okay, I'll give you the, the first thing is God's call on all of our lives is we are created by him, for him, to know him. So that's the first aspect of understanding your call in life, your purpose, where you have meaning, significance, value, worth, is I'm called to be with God. I'm called to know God. I'm called to worship God. Now, in years of pastoral ministry, this has probably been the biggest question uh, that I've worked through and wrestled through with people is, how do I understand God's call on my life? And I'm going to give you, uh, I think, just two things to help you understand um, that call. Because I would love for every single person to walk from this place confident and certain and being absolutely committed to God's call. Because if you are you are living the life that God created you to live to the fullest, okay? First thing of understanding your call is it's got to be birthed from your relationship with Christ. Before Paul met Jesus, before he had any encounter with Christ, he was doing his own thing. He was killing people. He was trying to kill this movement called Christianity, He was filled with all of these passions and desires, but they were misplaced passions and desires. It wasn't until he had one encounter with Jesus that changed absolutely everything. So that's the first thing is it's got to be birthed from your relationship with God through Christ. Second thing is this, you will understand God's call on your life in places of silence and solitude. Now, what I mean by that is if you really want to know what God has for you, then you'll just need to stop. So many of us are living lives going about 100 miles per hour. And it's not that God can't keep up with you. He certainly can. It's that you are going 100 miles an hour in this one direction. And until you stop and begin to sit with God, and allow God to shape and form and reveal to you his heart, then God will set you in motion again. But as you continue just to go about from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, it took literally the Apostle Paul being blinded by Jesus himself to literally stop him in his tracks before he began to understand, this is God's call in my life. I got it wrong. I'm not supposed to be killing Christians. I'm supposed to be proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus so that people would become Christians. Oh, I had it wrong. But now in that moment of being blinded and being forced to literally stop is when he began to finally understand how God had created him and what God had created him for. Um, a second thing of the being able to stop is listen. I, I, I've struggled with this myself, but I, I meet a lot of people who I just, 
I can't hear from God. I don't know what God's telling me to do. And I often tell people, I don't think you're having a hard time hearing from God because God's not speaking, because God's pretty generous with his voice. What I actually think is the issue is you have so much noise and volume in your life, you can't hear him. If you genuinely want to know God's call on your life, stop, position yourself in a place where you can begin to listen. It is really difficult to hear from God when you got a video game going on for eight hours a day, or when you're watching movies incessantly in TV shows. Now, I'm not condemning any of these things, but my point is we have so much noise and volume and so much distraction where I'm more concerned about checking my Facebook page every 10 minutes just to see if anyone liked anything I posted. Even though I didn't post anything, I'm going to see if anyone just liked it. <laughs> and we're so concerned with those things that we, we can't hear. We have so much noise, so much volume, so much distraction. Just turn it off. Unplug. Disconnect so that you can connect. Maybe for the first time in the most real, profound way. So that when you hear God's call on your life, I'm, I'm certain of this, I'm confident of this, and now I'm committed to this. And the third aspect is of stopping and then listening is community. Paul did not understand his call on his life from God outside of the context of community. It took uh, Cornelius, uh, who Paul didn't even know, and actually Paul was coming to put this man in prison to explain to him, Paul, this is what's happening. This is what God's doing. If you want to know and understand God's call on your life, you've got to do it in community. You can't do it by yourself. You go to the people around you, people that you know, love you, care about you, and say, this is what I think I'm hearing. Is this, is this right? And when they say no, be humble enough to say, okay, I'll sit with that. I'll consider that. Wow, now three people have told me that. Wow, 10 people are telling me the same message. I think they're all wrong. So I'm going to go listen to the community. God often speaks to you about you through other people. I'm not saying that God can't speak to you directly. He can and does and will. But God often also speaks to us the same message to those people that are around us. Um, one of the things that was really helpful to me in understanding God's call in my life is when someone just gave me the great wisdom and counsel of, Michael, it is, uh, they said, to understand um, that where you are is exactly where God wants you to be. I said, huh, well, that's catchy, but I'm confused as to where I am. And we began to kind of work through a process of how do I understand where I am as God, where that's where God wants me to be. Um, and then they said this to me, you are where you should be because God is preparing you for what he wants you, what he wants you to do next. And now this was really helpful counsel to me about uh, specifically uh, four years ago. Because about four years ago on my heart, my desire and what I was understanding to be God's call in my life was to plant a church called Genesis. And I, if you know me at all, I get an idea and I go. I'm just excited. I'm ready to run. But I kept getting the message of, this is it, but not now. Keep waiting. Let me keep forming character in you. You need to grow up. You need to be humbled. You need to learn. And those are probably two of the most difficult but glorious here's my life, filled with tons of challenges because I just wanted to go. I just wanted to run. But Michael, you are where you uh, should be because God is preparing you for what he wants you to do next. So sometimes understanding God's call is just where you are. Examine where you are, and it might be the exact place God wants you to be because he's preparing you for what's next, and you'll miss it if you begin to run. Well, I got this idea, so I'm going to go for it. Well, if you go for it, you might not only hurt yourself, but those people around you. For me, this is my call. It's as simple as, Michael, I've been called to love God. 
I've been called to love my wife. I've been called to love my three kids. And I've been called to pastor and shepherd a church. That's God's call in my life. That's it. Now, some people might say, well, that's ultimately, you know, that's been done before. What's, what's so original, as it were, uh, about that? Well, see, I don't think God's looking for us to be original. I think he just wants us to be faithful with what he wants us to do. And I will venture to say that your call uh, is probably not going to be dramatically different than mine. How would you sum up the Apostle Paul's call? What would you say? I would say, call to love God, called to remind the church about Jesus, called to tell those who don't know Jesus about Jesus. And specifically, Paul was also called to plant churches. That was his call. I would love for each of us to see exactly where you are in this point in your life is exactly where God wants you to be. But also understand that God is using where you are to prepare you for tomorrow, for next week, for next month, for next year. Paul was an encourager. Paul was certain, just convinced of God's call, and it led him to be committed to that call. And then I think one of the things that resonated, resonates with me most about the Apostle Paul that I love, and this is the third thing, is the Apostle Paul, he was a dreamer. My wife and I have gone back and forth many a time. I'm the dreamer, she's the realist. And dreamers are better than realists. What I love about Paul is that he was a dreamer. He knew what God's call in his life was, but Paul also had great dreams. And I think the dreams that Paul had were absolute God-given dreams because God called him to minister, to serve, to be a gospel witness east of Rome. And so he traveled year after year after year, 1,500 miles, preaching, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, But in Paul's heart, he wanted to go west. In Paul's heart, he wanted to go to Spain. Romans 15, 20 through 21. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul quotes Isaiah 52 of, I want to go to the place where no one has ever even heard of Jesus before. That's my dream. That's my ambition. That is my passion. I want to go to the land that has not even been touched before. It was the land known of, that's where the barbarians are. And Paul, I want to go there. I've lived in civilized Roman-occupied territory. But my dream, my passion is to go to Spain. Verse 23 and 24, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul had a dream to go to Spain. He had a dream to go to Spain. And what I love about Paul's dream is it wasn't about him. It was a God-centered dream. It wasn't about him. It was a others-centered dream. I'm going because God's placed that dream in my heart. I'm going because on my heart is I care about those people who have never even heard of God. That's where I want to go. Obvious question, what is your dream? When you consider what you are ambitious about, what you dream about, what is it? If someone were to just ask you randomly on the street, hey, what is your dream? What is your ambition? Now, some of you might say, well, I don't, I'm not a dreamer. I'm the realist. Re- not a real realtor, a realist. You know what I'm saying. I'm not, I don't, I'm not an ambitious person. That's not my personality. That's not how I think, and that's not how I'm wired. And I understand that. So let me ask this question. What are you asking God then for? What are you trusting him for? You might not use language of dreams and ambition, but it is sad to me when I meet a dreamless, ambitionless Christian. Someone who is just settled in for the ride. Someone who is just coasting. Why? Well, because it's comfortable. A dream might change things for me. Some ambition might rock the boat a little bit for me. 
So I just, I'll settle for, for what I know, for what I like, for what I'm comfortable with. And I just, God has so much more for you than just settling and coasting. If you are in relationship with the God of the universe, the creator of all, we should be some of the most biggest dreamers, the people who are filled with the most ambition. I like how Spurgeon said it. He said, God has great things in store for his people. They ought to have larger expectations. If God is God, then my expectations should be off the charts. I love how Paul exhorted us in this prayer. He says in Ephesians, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is his work within us. It's a simple way of saying you could never out-ask God, so what are you asking God for? You can't outdo him, so what are you coming to him with? Paul's dream, his desire was, God, I want to go to Spain. I want to go to that place. And as he completed the work that God had given to him in east of Rome, east of the Mediterranean, Paul begins now a journey towards towards Spain. I know for me, uh, being a dreamer, the one thing that I've had to keep in check over the years, really over much of my life, is who is at the center of this dream? Is this really just about me? Or is this really a God thing? Is this a God word, a God-centered, a God-founded, a God-idea dream? Or Michael, is this really just you wanting people to make much of you? Michael, is this really about you just wanting to be the center of attention, that people would think highly of you and think much of you? And I've had to wrestle with this back and forth. Is this really from God, or is this just me and my selfishness? Is this me and my insecurities? Is this me and my competitiveness? Some things that have been helpful to me in discerning the difference between Michael, is this really my thing, or if this is God's thing, give you two quick things here, is timing. I know that when I start forcing things, when I start trying to make things happen, it's a little bit more reflective of it's really about me and it's really my thing, not God's thing. So don't force something to happen all for the sake of pursuing the dream. Paul's desire was to go west, but he waited. Imagine if Paul would have just jumped ship, as it were, and said, forget the east, I'm going west. I can't imagine the thousands of people that may have not have heard of the gospel and the churches that would not have gotten planted, much of the New Testament we would not have. He was faithful to be where God wanted him to be and he trusted that the timing would be God's timing. And when it was time, he would move. Until then, he waited. Second thing is pay attention to the needs around you. Before Paul headed west, he said, before I go to Spain, before I, I pursue the dream, pursue the ambition, there's a community that's in need, and I'm going to go and help meet that need. He says in Romans 15, 25 through 26, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul was the bearer of the bank. And he said, the saints here have wanted to bless the saints in Jerusalem because they're going through a horrific famine. And I will bring resources with me. Before Paul chased and pursued his dream, he saw what the needs of the community were around them. And he said, I want to meet those needs. If I have the opportunity and the possibility to meet those needs, then I will be the man that will carry these resources and funds to be a blessing to the saints that are dying right now because of famine. So rather than having the perspective of forget the needs around me, because I want to go west. I want to go to Spain. I want to go do this. Wow, if there are needs around you and you just choose to neglect them, that is evidence. That is something to give you pause of really whose dream is this really about? And lastly is God's dream for you will never be about you being exalted. So as you even think about what your dream is, what your ambition as it were is, do you find yourself constantly thinking about, wow, if this happens, what are people going to say? If this actually comes to a reality, what would people say of me? If you find yourself thinking those thoughts, it's all about you, and it's a bad dream, 
It's not a dream worth pursuing. So you pray, say, God, would you plant deep within my soul something to be ambitious about, something to dream about, something that is greater than my smallness and is pointing to your greatness. What is your Spain? It's another way to phrase it. What is your Spain? For me, I'm pretty excited because I feel like I'm living it. When I consider Genesis, that was my dream. But it was coupled with my calling to pastor and shepherd a church. But what my dream is, is that Genesis, you, together, the we, God at work in us, is that we would plant dozens of churches in the Boston, greater Boston area. That's my dream. I would be sad if I woke up 20 years from now and we were still sitting here. It was the same group. I would, God, we turned into a zoo. I don't want to be a zoo. I don't want any one of us in this church to be created for something so much more, but yet not living the life God created us to live in the fullest. What is your Spain? What is your dream? In all honesty, you could say, I like that. I want to be part of that. My heart is that the testimony flowing from this community would be like, my goodness, I could never have imagined God would do that. We can't out-ask God. We can't out-dream God. My dream is small. Plant dozens of churches in this New England, greater Boston, Boston area. That's nothing. That's small. I want to ask God for more, and I believe God wants to do more with you, with us together. The fourth thing, and just finish with this and we'll pray, is Paul believed in forging partnerships. Bless you. What I love is he was an encourager. Paul was certain and convinced and committed to his call and was living out his call, but he had a dream, and I believe it was a God-given dream that Paul had to go west, to go Spain, because it was about God and it was about other people, and that's, that's a pretty good indicator. That's a God dream. But Paul also realized that, man, I can't do this thing by myself, and so he forged partnerships with people along the way. And we're going to look a little bit more about this next week of how we actually form friendships and what is the heart of the relationships that we actually have. But I'll read uh, uh, two verses here. Verse 24, I plan to, to do so when I go to Spain, and I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey. Meaning my, my dream won't become a reality unless we partner together. I need you to partner with me, Paul is saying. I want your assistance. I'm not a, a lone ranger cowboy doing my own thing my own way. Let's, let's be a we together. And he says in verse 30, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Will you partner with me and assist? Meaning, will you give your money to help get me to Spain so that thousands more people will hear about Jesus? And not only will you help financially assist this mission, but will you pray? Will you pray? This morning, um, I was really uh, excited to uh, just walk through these verses because uh, I've read Romans 15, the back half, many times. And I was like, oh, it's just closing out his letter. It's just the details of his travels. But as I sat with this uh, over the past month, I just saw something in Paul that I don't see in myself and I don't see in many other Christians people who are living the life that God has created you to live to the fullest. And I firmly believe that that's the life God wants you to live. And we have a choice. Will we live that life or will we settle? I'm thankful for the Apostle Paul. It's been inspiring considering his story. It's been inspiring considering his journey. 
But what's more awesome and just inspiring to me is the journey that God has us on. And I'm pretty excited not to look backwards as to what was, but I'm excited as I look forward to what I see God doing. And not being a church that resembles a zoo, but being a church that's filled with men and women who say, absolutely, I am living the life God created me to live in the fullest. I'm the first to encourage. I'm the first to say, I know what God's call in my life is, and I'm committed to that. We are the first to say, we've got great God-sized dreams. And we're also the first to say, yeah, but it's together. It's we. It's us. It's not just me and I. It's, it's us. Are you living that life? I don't believe this is just a life that we can talk about uh, and study and examine and be like, well, it's got to work for a few people. I believe it's the life God has for you. If you are here today and you are not living that life, you need to know that it starts with Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, if you've not received Jesus, wonder and wander. But in Christ and through Christ, he sets the course and direction of your life to begin to say, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get how God has wired and created me, and I'm living out of the fullest of that. If you don't know Christ, receive him today. If you don't know who Jesus is, he's God's son. He's the savior of the world. He's the one who came to bring us to God because I couldn't get to God on my own. That's who Jesus is. And if you're a Christian and have already received Christ, but you've just been walking, but really your life resembles a little bit more of the guy living in the zoo, then as we would pray right now, would you ask God to fill your heart with an understanding and knowledge of his call and ask God to give you a dream, something to be ambitious about.